copy of God's Word. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. Luke 5 is where we are today, and we are continuing our series called Labels, and we're in week two of this series. So we live in a world where pretty much everyone seems to have a label. A a word comes to mind when we think of certain people, or maybe we fall into a certain type of group of people, or a stereotype, if you will. As painful as it might be for those of us that have been through high school, let's think back on our high school years for just a minute. It was pretty obvious what your label was in the high school days, was it not? You, you had your jocks, right? You, you had your preps, the preppies. You, you had, in my day, the skaters. Uh, you had the hippies. No finger pointing, please. But it is, <laughs> some of you are like, oh, that was me. Uh, so you can think back, and it was clear to see where you fell, what label was on you. Now, here's the point. Labels are what we are known for. And sometimes those labels are given to us by others, and sometimes we kind of seek out those labels, things that we want to be known by. Uh, maybe uh, you have the squatting truck uh, driving down the road. You, you want to be known by something there, right? There are things that we do to be known for something. In this series, we're, we're looking at a few characters in the New Testament who were given labels, and these labels were not always complimentary. In fact, most of the time they weren't. Uh, maybe you remember a few of these. Simon the Zealot, James and John, the sons of Thunder. That's right. Doubting Thomas. And today we'll be focusing on another character, Matthew the tax collector. Matthew the tax collector. So, uh, I know you just sat, but here at Downtown Church we like to stand for the initial reading of God's Word. Just an honor. So if you would and you're able, let's stand for the initial reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32 reads... After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. All right, so as Jesus is walking along, he comes across a man named Levi, and we later find out Levi becomes Matthew post conversion, post coming to faith in Jesus. And as Jesus encounters this man, Levi, we learn something about this man's reputation, which brings us to our first point for today, which is this. Matthew was a man with a label. Matthew was a man with a label. Okay, so from our vantage point, from our viewpoint, when we think of Matthew, we think of a good man. This was a solid disciple of Jesus. He was faithful in following Jesus. 
And obviously, Matthew proceeds to write down in detail the accurate and historical account of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, here on this earth and what he did for us. And we still cherish that gospel today in the church. So if you read each of the gospel accounts, which if you don't know, there are uh, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of these books account for the life and ministry of Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you read Matthew's account, it's a little different than the others. And what Matthew typically does is he tailors his message for a Jewish audience. So here's what that means. So the Jews were, and some still are today, waiting on the Messiah. And so what Matthew did was throughout his gospel account, he looks back. And he points to 99 texts in the Old Testament saying, this is the Christ. He's fulfilling that one and that one and that prophecy and that prophecy. And he's pointing back. And he uses 14 Old Testament books to do this. Now, that's significant because if you add up the others, Mark, Luke, and John, and you were to stack them up, Matthew references the Old Testament more than all of them combined. And so Matthew was a smart guy, really intelligent man, and he was pointing to the Old Testament to teach us, to reveal to the Jews of his day, as well as for us, that Jesus, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. So when we think about Matthew, we think about this well-decorated disciple that obviously made these major contributions to our Christian faith. But what was Matthew known for in his day? What was his reputation in the day that he lived? Look at Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, he, talking about Jesus, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. All right, there's three little words in there that reveal what everybody thought about this guy named Levi. He was a tax collector. Here's what that means. And we can just know this just from those three words. Nobody liked Matthew. Okay? Not one person in that area liked this guy, Levi, because he was a tax collector. Years ago, our family dog got sick. And uh, so we, we took the dog to the vet and we didn't think it was that big of a deal, but then the vet calls us and says, hey, we've, we've got to put the dog down. And we were all shocked, and well, we did. We had the dog put down, and, but my brother took it very personally, and so every time we drove by that vet clinic, he'd make a spitting sound like, puh, puh, just spitting at that vet every time he passed it. That's kind of what everyone felt about these tax collectors. They were just, puh. You don't want to be around them, those sinners, those evil people, just nasty, nasty people. And that's evident in this account when Jesus initially spends time with Matthew and these other tax collectors. Look at Matthew 5, uh, verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So keep in mind, people are still trying to figure out who Jesus is at this point. 
they're looking at this man that can do things that no one else can do. He's doing all these miracles that we studied last week and the weeks or the weeks uh, preceding this series. They're trying to figure out, is he a holy man? Is he a prophet? Is he a great teacher? Or maybe he's the Messiah, which he is, praise God. And so they're trying to figure this out. And in the process of that, they're like, Jesus, why would you spend time with these guys? Why wouldn't you be spending time with the highfalutin politicians? Why not spend time with the wealthy and the influential, or at least the people that everybody likes? But Jesus spent time and shared a meal with these tax collectors, these despised people of society. And this was jarring for a couple of reasons. One reason is because they were traitors. They were traitors. So tax collectors were traitors. So Israel, the nation of Israel, was being ruled by the Roman Empire. And so Rome would look at Israel and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We want your money, but here's how we're going to collect the money. We're going to appoint tax collectors from you people. And so they would appoint these tax collectors from the nation in the kingdom of Israel. And so they were hand-selected, hand-picked to collect money from their own people to give to another nation, another kingdom. And so they were traitors. Another reason that they were despised is because they were also cheaters. They were cheaters. All right, so the taxes themselves, uh, this would be a burden on God's people. But here's how tax collectors made money. They were given permission by the Roman Empire. They said, okay, we want you to collect X from all these people, X percent from all these people. You can charge a fee on top of that, and you can make that fee whatever you want it to be. That's cool with us. And so they did. And these tax collectors, they would collect the taxes, which were already a burden, and then they would stack on top of that this large fee. And everybody knew about this. And so when they looked at these tax collectors, they did not care for these men. They did not care for them at all. And so they were despised because they were traitors and they were cheaters. And by the way, if you challenged Matthew or his tax collector buddies, the Roman government empire would come down on you and there'd be consequences. So you got Levi, who's going to be Matthew. Nobody likes him. Everybody hates him. And yet, here's what we don't need to miss this morning, church. The Lord Jesus approaches that guy. And he approaches that despised, nasty guy. And says, follow me. And he offers that invitation to somebody that was just dismissed. Somebody that was despised. Somebody that was loathed. And he invites him to follow him. Which brings us to our second point for today. Number two, Jesus chose a man with a label to be his follower. Look at Luke 5 verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. All right, so despite what Matthew was known for, despite how Matthew was hated, despite how selfish and sinful and callous this man was, Jesus walks up to him and chooses him and invites him to follow 
Christ. You remember when you were a kid and you wanted to play kickball with your friends? Typically, a couple of team captains would, would arise, right? And what did they do? They started picking people. And who did they pick? They picked the best, right? They wanted the one who could boot the ball the farthest, the one that could run the fastest, the athletic people, right? And some of you are like, I, I wouldn't pick first ever, right? <laughs> Jesus could have gone to the temple, and he could have picked those recent seminary graduates, the best of the best, so to speak. He could have sought out the influential people of society. He could have sought out those with power. But it, it seems like Jesus does something completely different. And it doesn't just seem like he does. He picks people like Matthew, a despised tax collector. He picks people like fishermen, people that were looked down upon in society. And he approaches these people and he invites them to follow me. He goes to the outcast of society on purpose and really for a purpose. Let's consider this together. It's misleading to say that God accepts us the way we are. Rather, he accepts us despite the way we are. That's a big thought, so I want to read that one more time. It's misleading to say that God accepts us the way we are. Rather, he accepts us despite the way we are. So God is not looking around our world today here in Mobile, Alabama, and looking at all the people in Mobile saying, okay, what do they have to offer? What talents, what skills, what abilities do they bring to my church if I invite them into the family of God? That's not what happens at all. That's not what the Lord our God does. He calls us and he invites us to follow him despite who we are. Despite our labels, despite what we are incapable of. There's a word that stands out as I think about that, and the word is grace. The word grace means the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. In church, that's, that's exactly what you and I live in. We live in the grace of God. We experience his grace on our lives. We experience his grace on our souls. We are undeserving of anything good from God. We had a discussion about this in our life group recently, about this favor of God upon our lives. Let me share with you a text you've probably heard before. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 reads, For by grace you have been saved. Let me read that again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Church, here, here's what that means. Not one person in this room, not one person in this church deserves to be called a Christian. Not one of us. It doesn't matter when you prayed to receive Christ. It doesn't matter what accolades you've stacked up. It doesn't matter how many RA or GA badges you got when you were a kid. None of that merits the grace of God. Not one iota. 
When I was a kid, uh, there was a, a phrase that I would blurt out sometimes, and I actually hear this phrase from my kids sometimes to this day. And the phrase is, that's not fair. To which my dad would quickly reply, well, son, the fair's where you get corn dogs and funnel cakes. Life's not fair. And it's true. Life is not fair. In church, that's a very good thing. Because if life were fair, you and I would get exactly what we deserve. We would get eternal punishment, eternal torment, eternal separation from God. Let's look at this verse together. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We just wrapped up another work week, although I was on vacation. But uh, you wrapped up another work week, maybe. And at your next paycheck, you're going to look at that figure that your company pays you, your employer pays you, and you're going to look at that and make sure that it reflects the amount of hours that you worked, what you earned. And it's really no different spiritually. We have earned something spiritually. Only what you and I have earned spiritually through all of our sinful thoughts, through all of our sinful words and sinful actions and even sinful inactions, things that we should have done, all of that tallies up. And here's what we have earned, church. Death. That's what we've earned. We've earned death. And yes, that is a physical death, but it's also a spiritual death. That's what we have earned. That's what we deserve. But in Christ, praise God, we don't get what we deserve. Amen, church? Look at this verse one more time. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, don't miss this. All of us have earned death. We've earned nothing good, but there is a gift. And the only way to get this gift is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, by grace through faith in Jesus. And when you profess, you confess Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen? And you will inherit eternal life. This is huge. This is massive, church. All of this to say... Jesus didn't choose Matthew to be on his team because he's like, wow, Matthew brings a lot to the table. Wow, Matthew's really good at writing things down and remembering detail, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring him. That's not what happened. Matthew was saved by grace through faith, just like you and I. Before we continue any further in this study, I would encourage all of us to consider the state of our souls. Because our souls are in one of two states this morning. Either you are in Christ and you are saved. You are ready for eternity because you have received that eternal gift. Or you are not in Christ. And there is no grace there. If you reject Christ in this life, there is no grace 
and no mercy for all eternity. So Matthew was issued this invitation to respond. And I want to say this to you also. Maybe, maybe you've been going to church for years. Maybe you grew up in the church and you were at the church every time the doors were open. Please hear me. If you're not ready for eternity, get right today. Okay? There's an invitation for you today to respond to the gospel of Jesus. So Matthew hears the invitation and he responds. Look at Luke chapter 5, verse 27 again. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. All right, so Matthew has issued the invitation. And Matthew accepts quickly. He quickly accepts the invitation. And then he literally starts following Jesus around. And he's watching Jesus keenly. He's listening to Jesus intently. He's making notes, I believe, for his gospel account. He is just soaking it all in. And eventually he goes on to pen that gospel account that we often read from, the gospel of Matthew. And in Matthew's gospel account, we learn something interesting about how Matthew views himself and how he takes that label and he does something with it, which leads us to our final point for today. Number three, Jesus calls us to embrace our labels. Jesus calls us to embrace our labels. Okay, so Matthew has this not-so-good label. He's the tax collector. You don't want to be that guy, okay? But that's who he is. And then Jesus calls him despite that label, and then we see Matthew does something interesting, something strange, really, with that label. Let's read what Matthew says about himself in Matthew chapter 10. It's up on the screens. Verses 2 and 3 reads, The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. All right, what did Matthew do with his label? He could have done this. He could have said, I'm a Christian. That's not who I am anymore and not talk about that anymore. He could have dismissed that label, but instead it's like he's embracing the label, which is really interesting because if you look at the other gospel accounts, specifically in Mark and Luke's account, they give the same exact list. Only in their list, they just call him Matthew. But Matthew adds, uh, yeah, I'm the tax collector. I'm that guy. And he's embracing this label. Here's what I think Matthew was doing. I think Matthew was doing something similar to what the Apostle Paul does in his letters on a few occasions. Let's read one of these in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Okay. Of all the people in the scriptures that could celebrate what they've done, that could celebrate the growth that could celebrate the change, that could celebrate the accomplishments and achievements. It, it was the Apostle Paul. But what does Paul do? He says, hey, listen, let me tell you what I was like. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. And he's almost celebrating his past. Not celebrating, but just educating about his past. And why does Paul do that? Why does Paul say God saved a guy like him? Look at verse 16 again. But I received mercy, the mercy of God, for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Church, we need to own our mistakes. We need to own our past. We need to own who we were, and we need to own who we are. I I think there's a lot of lost people around us today who want nothing to do with the church. And I think, in part, the reason is because they feel like they don't deserve God's love. They don't deserve God's mercy because they're not holy. They know that. And so they don't want to try to be holy But church, if we can go out into the community from this old church building and we can go alongside of them and work alongside of them in the desk beside them, sit at restaurant booths with with them, if we can come alongside of them and say, me neither, I'm not a good person either. I'm a sinner. I've got a past. I've got junk in my life right now. But can I tell you about God's grace Can I tell you about his mercy towards sinners like me? Can I tell you what he's doing in me? And you know what? It's not just the lost world that needs to see this. Co-workers, kids, kids need to see their parents owning their mistakes. Parents, it does no good if we just gloss over our mistakes and act like they did not happen. But if we can look at our kids and say, yeah, I messed up, buddy. Daddy shouldn't have said that. Daddy, Daddy needs Jesus right now, okay? It's okay to admit that. Spouses, we need to own up to our mistakes to our spouses. The contexts are endless. We need to own our mistakes and our failures. And when we do, we need to quickly point to the grace and mercy of God in our lives. Amen? If I... If I could offer one last encouragement, it would be this. Know you are forgiven and extend grace to others. Maybe you grew up watching Charlie Brown or reading the comic strips. Whenever it rained in those Charlie Brown cartoons or comics, uh, where was the rain cloud? It was always right over Charlie Brown, right? It was just this little cloud that just kind of followed Charlie Brown around. And here's what I think happens sometimes. I think sometimes we live feeling defeated 
by our sin. We live feeling defeated by the temptations that we feel. But please understand, the Lord doesn't want you to stay under a cloud of shame all the time. That's not what he wants for you. Author of Hebrews says it like this. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Think about that. Church, in light of what Christ has done for us, in light of our faith in Jesus, we can boldly come into the throne room of God because it's a throne of grace, unmerited favor, undeserved love, and we can come to him. I would encourage you to do that. Also, we've been forgiven much, so church, we should be quick to forgive much. We need to extend grace to others. There's a lot of hurting, imperfect people in this world, just like us. And it does no good if we walk around with our, our score cards, measuring all the things that people do wrong, pointing out all the flaws. Church, we need to extend grace. Not like the Pharisees, not like the Sadducees who were coming down hard on people even though they were far from God themselves. We need to first come to the Lord, embrace his grace and mercy, and we need to extend grace and mercy. Amen? Uh, Years ago, I was a student pastor. And at one of our camps that we were at, after uh, the camp pastor preached, one of my students came to the back of the room just sobbing, just weeping. I thought, what's wrong? They said, I, I don't deserve it. It's like, what do you not deserve? And then they got really quiet, and they said, I've done a lot of stuff. I've done a lot of things that I'm not proud of. I don't really want to talk about them. Can God really love me? To which I could gladly look at him and smile and say, you get it. You get it now. You're you're not worthy. You're not deserving of God's love and neither am I. That's why it's called grace. And praise God, church, we don't get what we deserve. Amen? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Our band's going to come on up. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. I'm going to encourage you to respond to the word of God. The book of James reveals that God's people should not simply be hearers of the word, but that it should affect the way we live. We should be doers. I want you to just take a moment And consider what action steps might you need to take in your life. Maybe it's been a while since you've just marveled at the grace of God. Maybe there's someone in your life that's messed up, but you've not extended grace to them. Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness for something you've done. Lord, you know our hearts. You know what's going on across our church family. And Lord, we ask that you would take your living and active word and that you would stir our hearts. 
Make us more like your son, Jesus, to the glory of your name. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. May we live our lives in light of that grace. It's in Christ's name we pray.